prayer before we begin. God, this morning we've heard from the psalm and from the book of Isaiah through this New Testament reading of your promises of our faults and sins and inequities and your mighty forgiveness and goodness. May that message come through in the sermon. May that message come through in communion. And may that take residency within us. Amen. For those of you who read the email, and because we use MailChimp, I know who you are. And because some of you don't, I know who you are too. Um, Some of you just haven't trusted me with your email yet either, so you're safe. Um, But this Sunday, we're going to start sort of walking through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Basically, from now all the way until Easter, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark. And as some of you maybe know, is that when we began meeting like this, we also read from the beginning of Mark, and we also read from the book of Isaiah. Although we read longer from the book of Mark this morning, all the way to verse 15, and we, we read a different passage from the book of Isaiah as well. But these passages speak of the way that this book begins. Now, there's this, there's this sort of thing that, that my mentor in seminary and, and professor Joanne, I used to say that Joanne is a good reader. And Matt is somebody who reads a lot. And the difference between those two things are pretty huge. Now, are there people here who would say that they're good readers, but they don't read a lot? It's a different gift, yeah? I mean, it's a different gift for sure. Uh, there are people like me. There was the came became clear to me and Joanne when I was preaching on Galatians, and I got this commentary that must have been 800 pages, and I spent four days with it at the library, and I said, I think I got it. And she said, I'm Matthew. That book came out when I was in seminary, and I have been struggling with that book ever since. Um, And I'm amazed that you were able to read it in that amount of time. And I said, well, Joanne, the difference is I read it, and you understood it. (laughs) um, It's a little bit easier to read. But one of the things I think that we want to do with the Gospel of Mark through this series is not just read it, but understand it. And that's a different skill. Many of us read Scripture. We read Scripture in snippets most often, not all the way through. And Mark is the shortest gospel. So one of my my hopes for us is that we can find time during this, at least one time in these next 12 weeks, where you can sit aside and at least read the gospel in halves, 1 through 8 and 8 through 16. And then we can read it like it's almost like a novel. Because what happens then, new meanings and new things open up for you. Now, there's a famous story of these, this, this biblical studies professor. There's this British man who memorized the Gospel of Mark, and he would read the whole Gospel of Mark as like a play in a theater. And there was an intermission right around chapter 8. Now, the Gospel of Mark breaks into two very interesting halves. There's one, one through eight, where Jesus sort of calls disciples, goes throughout the countryside, lives the life of an itinerant preacher, And Eugene Peterson says this funny phrase in his book about it, that he acts like he has all the time in the world, which of course he does, uh, which I think always makes me laugh. But then Peter predicts, or Peter confesses who Jesus is. You're the Messiah. And after that, Jesus changes tracks and begins to head towards Jerusalem and continually is predicting his death and going towards his death. 
Some people say that we really just have four narratives of the cross with different introductions to them. One through eight is this introduction to that. And all four of the Gospels get really tight and really intense around what happens at the cross. So eight through 16 make a sort of a different half of the Gospel. And so this week in, in the mail email, or if you need it differently, I, I, I'm going to try and put the audio edition, an audio edition of the Bible, so that you can listen to it, if that helps. And it should be noted that like, we'll talk about being good readers of the book of Mark, but the original people who, who, who got the book of Mark were listeners. They weren't hearers. Scripture was read aloud more often, and without a printing press, you would, you would give one copy to a community, then they would read it out loud. Not everybody had their personal copies of it. And then I'll also try and give out a, a, a Word document or a PDF of the, of the book of Mark that has none of the chapter breaks, footnotes, asterisks, um, all the things that distract you when you're reading the Bible. So you can just sort of read it through. Um, and my hope is that you guys would have time to do that. But one of the things I wanted to start off with is the difference between good readers and people who read a lot is good readers know something about a novel from its opening lines. And so I had a couple opening lines I'd show, and we were going to see who can guess them and and then see what it says about the novel to some extent. This one I think most people are familiar with. It's a book that we know the lines of, but many of us haven't read. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the epic. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Jamie, did you already say it? Tale of Sioux Cities. Carla, you said it. Surround sound up here. This one, um, this one, and I. Crystal um, is getting induced this week. Crystal, who comes to church here, this, and so they're kind of staying at home trying to get ready for that, her and her family. But I don't think this is the name she p- has picked out. <laughs> there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> Do you know that one, Kim? Yeah. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, yeah. Yeah, that's and this and this one, you know, I mean, the first one gives you a sense of what that novel is going to cover. This one, you know, a lot about this character based off of this first line. My my parents are visiting this way, so I couldn't go without this one. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Tolstoy, yeah, Anna Karina, one of my favorite novels. Um, and this is where a good reader would have read this and said, I know something of what this novel is going to be about. And they would have very cleanly seen, this is not going to be about happy families. Because <laughs> that would be a boring book, according to this line. It would have to be about an unhappy family that is unhappy in its own ways. This one is made fun of often. <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. There's two instances. Do people know them? Snoopy, does anybody know the second one? There's a movie coming out with the second one. Wrinkle in Time. And at that moment, it was a joke that this was an opening line, and she used it as sort of a joke for this novel that wouldn't get picked up anywhere. But this is the opening line from A Wrinkle of Time and Well. And this is Kelly's favorite novel. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me. 
all that David Copperfield kind of stuff. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. No. No, the catcher in the rye. And this one I, I, I wanted to stop with because it, this is, if you could imagine, um, the gospel writer of Mark being this sort of flippant and crass. If you want to know how Jesus was born and what his parents were like and what the angels did and what his genealogy is, you can read Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke. And if you want to know about like this cosmic steam of what it means for the word to become flesh and live in the world, you can read John. But for me, I'm going to tell you the story so that you can get to the truth of it right off the bat. Now, Chris, Chris has this um, image she made of Jesus in the manger, and this is one of the most notable things that's absent from Mark. And so that guy who would perform the book of Mark, people would leave the theater, many biblically illiterate people, which doesn't say whether they went to church or not, funny enough, um, and they would say, well, I wonder when he's going to get to the Sermon on the Mount, which is not in the Gospel of Mark. I wonder when he's going to get to uh, some of the longer parables that we all enjoy, the parable of the lost son, not in the Gospel of Mark. One of the things I wanted to say is that we most often live with mosaics of Jesus as modern Christians, and we have all of these images from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the, the Gospels, the book of Revelation, and we've made this mosaic of Jesus that is beautiful. It is good and it is true. But by doing that, we don't know often the pieces that made up the mosaic very well. We don't know the shape and the color of, of what's the dark spot and what's the light spot and what's this color here. And so with this sort of journey with the Gospel of Mark is that we're going to try and sort of appreciate one piece of the mosaic as best as we can. Now, as many of you know, for me as a preacher, I'm always pulling in other texts, and so it'll be a challenge to sort of stick with Mark and not try to fill out the information with another gospel. There's nothing wrong with that, but Mark is this gospel that's clearly, we think, written for a community, a church. What Mark is giving them is this gospel that's meant to inspire them and to bring them to life in some ways. And so my hope for this series is that we can begin to take and appreciate the shape and the contours, the light and the darkness and the goodness of the gospel of Mark in and of itself, to see the peace that it plays in making the mosaic that we have of Jesus. So that's sort of where we're going to be going. And some of you will say, well, churches spend years on a gospel. We're going to do it in 12 weeks, which I would say, no better gospel than the gospel of Mark, not just because it's short, because uh, Mark has this Greek phrase immediately that occurs 76 times in the gospel of Mark, appears almost nowhere else in the New Testament. Mark has this Jesus that's almost moving faster than you can read. And then immediately he does this, and then immediately he does this, and immediately he does this. And because translators don't want to be preserved as bad translators, they translate this phrase different ways because it would be annoying if every time you were reading it, they think it said immediately. I think they're right, but that means that we have to like sort of appreciate as we're reading the Gospel of Mark that like when it says something like immediately or and then, it's just the same great phrase over and over saying then he hopped to here, then he went on to this, then he did this, which we don't quite get in the English, but it comes through more in the Greek. 
And so this is sort of my hope for this. And and Luke Timothy Johnson, a, a Catholic scholar, says that the reading of Mark that gives life and enables the learning of Jesus is the slow, deliberate, ruminative, associative reading of his story in a sequence, a kind of reading that is simply impossible to replace by any mode of analysis. It involves entrusting one's spirit to the spirit, which can work through the act of reading. It takes time, it takes patience, it takes repetition, it takes silence and creative fidelity. And to properly hear the Gospel of Mark, it also involves suffering. The f- for Luke Timothy Johnson, what he's talking about is this type of reading that is good reading. He's not saying that I was doing my Bible in a year program, and this was the reading for the day, and so I read it, and then I moved on. The place for that in the Christian devotional life. But what he's saying is that for you to really hear the Gospel of Mark, you go slow, you go deliberate. You have a creative fidelity, trust to the story. And through that, you become what he calls learners of this gospel. And that's, that's sort of the Greek phrase for disciple. That we would be learners of this gospel is the goal for us in this series. So we have a different beginning. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. How the book of Mark begins. And so many people will talk about the book of Mark's prologue. So the sermon is sort of in two halves. First half was, here's what we're doing with the book of Mark. Second half is, here's some observations about what we read for today. Everybody can follow that. Um, The beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the phrase that opens the book of Mark. Now, gospel occurs many times in the book of Mark, less in Matthew, less in Luke, and a lot of times in Paul. So gospel is this phrase, as the gospel writers go, very Mark. And Mark, as many people believe, is writing the first gospel, which is amazing to think about because this is the first way of telling a narrative like this. It's the first way of opening up who Jesus is through written word. At this moment that he compiles and makes these stories, many people think he was a traveling companion of Peter who heard them firsthand, but he takes these stories and makes them and places them in such a way that a whole new genre of literature is sort of invented, a gospel, that never existed before. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the gospel is this phrase that the Romans would have known as good news from a battlefield. We won the war. So if you're a Roman person reading this, you would have heard gospel and you said, this is a story about conflict, of challenges. And I think the introduction, which goes all the way that scholars can debate things forever, but this consensus at the moment seems to be goes all the way to where Jesus announces the gospel. So you have gospel in Mark, the opening, and then they say sort of the prologue closes when Jesus goes out and announces the gospel, that the kingdom has come near. And what happens in this prologue is three sort of very big things. 
And these three big things influence the rest of the gospel. Good readers would see this. So first, it's the gospel which includes some sense of conflict. In Mark, you'll see this conflict very clearly. But, so you're hearing that, and then it's the beginning of it, which is, uses this Greek phrase, arche, which is the same one if you were reading the Greek Old Testament, so that another famous beginning lines, maybe the most famous lines, was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Similar to what, what Mark is starting with here, too. And so he's placing Jesus in this, in this new beginning, in this new creation, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's pushing these stories all right up at the front. And then he jumps in the opening sentence even to the book of Isaiah. He begins to speak of, of sort of oracles that have been forgotten and proclaim things that are happening. Now, what's great is John is out here practicing this baptism of repentance. And the people, like, aren't quite sure why he's doing this. This is why people come and ask John, why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? And John is like, I'm preparing for something. He doesn't know what the something is, but he knows he's been called to prepare the way for something. As a Jew, he would, he would think it could be Messiah, it could be that Israel's God is finally going to show up on the scene himself and set things to right. It could be lots of things, and John is preparing the way for something. There's this phrase that people say that wherever the queen goes, there's French paint. She smells fresh paint. Everybody makes things look nice for when the queen comes. John is in some sense offering this place of which things will be clean and reset again for when Jesus gets here. He's painting Israel. He's marking them again so that they'll be ready for when Jesus appears on the scene. And so John is this character who's quickly forgotten in the book of Mark. He shows up again in sort of a flashback later, which is, I mean, an amazing thing that the gospel of Mark includes a flashback scene. I've read a fair amount of ancient literature, and almost none of them have, like, flashbacks the way the Gospel of Mark does it. But he has this one about John later in the text. But um, it has this flashback scene, but John is sort of dropped at this moment. John is the one who prepares the way. In the second scene, Jesus sort of comes out of the crowds. Now, Jesus just sort of comes out of the crowds is an interesting sort of thing because in the other Gospels, the baptism scene is, is, is told a little bit differently in that other people notice him, John notices him, there's something maybe more unique about him. But in John's Gospel, Jesus just sort of emerges with the rest of the crowds. For the early church, the people after Mark, they really struggled with why would Jesus get baptized? It's a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus doing getting in the water? Now, one of my favorite, favorite thinkers says that, that so when Jesus heals lepers, he doesn't get leprosy. He hollows their bodies. He makes holy their bodies. And so when he gets in water, he makes water holy again. Now, you can see this also going back to that beginning story, too. In the beginning, God's spirit hovered over the waters. Jesus gets into the waters. There's a lot of, my, partially my point here today is you're going, wow, there's lots of thick meaning here that Matt keeps laying on all these different stories. That's the point. 
Like, there's so much going on in these first 15 verses that they're telling us about who Jesus is. And so Jesus sort of emerges from the crowd. Nobody really notices him, and he gets in the water, and John baptizes him. And here it seems that Mark is saying that only Jesus sees the heavens open and this dove. And, and in Mark, it's, it's a little bit weirder because it's like a dove, and it sort of comes and resides in him in the Greek. So there's this, there's this amazing thing here is that the first is that the heavens opens. And if you're thinking like I did for most of my life, that means that the sky sort of opened and then the stuff came out, which there's truth to that. But, but if you were a good reader of the Old Testament, and remember I've already confessed to being somebody who reads a lot, not being a good reader, if people help me with that. Um, if you were a good reader of the Old Testament, heaven often represents this reality behind the scenes. It's like a, there's a shade over the world, and when they talk of heaven, they talk about you no longer just see a river with people there. You see what God sees. God sort of reveals this. And, and so Jesus sees the heavens open. Now, the Greek phrase that, that Matthew and Luke use for this scene is a bit like this. Jesus sees the heavens open. And a spirit, a dove comes in the form of a spirit. What actually happens in Mark is he uses a phrase more like, like this. The heavens are torn open. He's, he's, he's saying that what happened when Jesus gets in the water is that something is torn open. Now, the reason why I think that is important is because what can be open can be shut, but what's torn is normally not put back together. Mark is saying that when Jesus is entering into the water, that the heavens are ripped in a way that they're not going to be put back together. And God's Spirit comes and enables Jesus for this ministry and this life. And the voice from heaven speaks that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, see, this is where I'm a bad reader because I should have checked Mark. I have it memorized as, as a mosaic um, in whom I am well pleased. Um, and so that there's this confession of God at this scene too. Now, this is one of my favorite things when people talk about, well, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, which is true. But here, as you have in creation, is God hovering over the waters and the spirit in creation. Here, the dove descends, the Father's voice speaking, and the Son in the water. In creation, it's actually God's word that goes forth, which, which adds to that meaning in the Gospel of John. That here you have this, this sort of Trinitarian scene of the God being pleased with the Son and his spirit sort of anointing him. And you have these three actors all at once that are all divine. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus gets in the waters with all these people, and he sees this. And what happens next, and this is another, another thing that, that you would notice if, if you read it in Greek, is he is driven out to the wilderness. Now, in Matthew and Luke, he's kind of guided out to the wilderness by the Spirit, or he goes to the wilderness. It may not even be the Spirit. The phrase that Mark uses is this phrase, ekbalo. Now, the phrase ekbalo appears 17 times in the Gospel of Mark, and 11 of them are driving out demons. So, the Spirit doesn't just 
guide Jesus out to the desert. The Spirit doesn't just gently nudge him out there. The Spirit, after the baptism, casts Jesus out to the desert, drives him out to the desert, compels him out to the desert. Jesus is pressed to the desert after his baptism. This is um, the beginning of what you can see is a big conflict here. Because if you were a Jew, the desert and wilderness is both the place of testing. It's in, in this time, most of their folk literature and, and stuff would be, it would be the place where demons reside. It would be the place of danger, of trials, of starvation, likely, and of dehydration. Jesus is pushed to that place by the Spirit almost instantly after he's baptized. He's driven out to the desert. And so what happens there is Jesus is with Satan, contends with Satan, and he is with the wild animals. There's two observations here. One is the one with the devil, is that um, Jesus later in Mark's gospel, and we'll spend some time with this scene, when he's casting out demons, they say, well, how is it that you do this? And he says, well, first, before you rob somebody, you bind the strong man who lives in the house. What happens in the desert with Satan is Jesus very clearly binds the strong man, this devil that has rule over the world. He locks him up and shuts him down. Jesus goes out to the desert to sort of announce that this conflict that he is joining, that humanity has been suffering in for a long time, he goes out to the desert to meet his foe. And there, in the language of Mark, he binds him so that he can be an agent of healing in the world. The second thing is with the wild animals is that there's all sorts of, there's different theories on whether these are threats to him or that this is an Isaiah-like scene where new creation is coming and the wild animals are with him in almost like an Eden-like state and the angels are ministering to him and that phrase could be like aiding or worshiping or there's all sorts of things that could be happening here. But what it means is that this big thing is happening here in the desert, in the wilderness, where Jesus is driven out to and tested. He faces trials. Now, Luke gives a lot of details about this, but this is all Mark really wants to tell us about him. This time is that he meets with the devil, and he meets with the wild animals, and angels minister to him, and that he is sort of combating the forces that mess with the world. And so he goes out to the desert. And then he comes back onto the scene and, and sort of begins to announce the kingdom, the good news. Repent and believe, change your lives. Be invited into the story. And if you were reading the story well, you would know that, that this is the one who brings the baptism that John talks about, not the baptism of repentance, but the baptism of power, the spirit that this is what this person on the scene is about to do. And so this is one interesting part about this, is that we have access to all these scenes. As Jesus lives and goes out through the book of Mark, as far as we know, and it's very clear, is that nobody else has access to these scenes. If you're reading a book and the narrator tells you something and he doesn't tell the rest of the characters... There's two things that's happened. One is you should understand that the rest of the characters don't know this information. 
which makes the disciples a little bit more interesting in their stubbornness and lostness to get this, is that they don't know the same things that we've heard from the narrator. Jesus might have told them, but that's not really for us to say. If we're going to be good readers of the text, we go with what Jesus says to them, and he hasn't said this to them. That's why when Peter finally confesses that you're the Messiah, it's a big deal that they finally sort of pieced it together themselves. And the second thing is that it would, it would sort of, if you knew that this, it would help you look, sort of look at the disciples differently, but it also help you understand what you're reading for. As Jesus goes forth, you should always be thinking of these sort of three scenes. He's one who comes from these old promises in the book of Isaiah and is renewing those again. He's one who has entered into the world and contended or who is blessed by the Spirit and has spoken over him that this is my son by the Father. And he's one who has contended with the powers of darkness and come out ahead. This is what we should always have in mind with Jesus. And so what does it mean for us today as Defiance Churches? It means to know that we're hearing of the good news of a conflict that Jesus has joined. And how he's going to win it is what we're going to find out through the book of Mark. The next person to call Jesus God's son, as many of us know, is the, is, this, is the one at the cross. Somehow, and this is where the readers of the story will always be caught up to, is that Jesus' revelation as the crucified one who's faithful to God unto death is somehow where people can begin to finally go, oh, this is God's son. So first off, we, we're people who hear this news. The second is that heaven is torn in baptism. And the Spirit enters into the world. This is the same Spirit that the believers inherit at Pentecost and that lives in us today. Somehow the challenge for us, too, is to have the Spirit and to see heaven revealed as well. We ask that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We pray to our fathers in heaven to begin to, to sort of live as heavenly citizens in a world that's already um, defeated and is going to be defeated someday as our challenge. To also hear in the remembrance of our baptisms, which we can remember each Sunday with that, that jar out there too, is that God speaks over us that as we become Christians that this is his child. We belong to a different parent now. Jesus' family in the Gospel of Mark is going to come to him and say, you've lost it, come home. And he's going to say, who's my family? It's those gathered here that do the will of my Father. I've been brought to a new place with him. And the last is, is that Jesus has gone out and bind up the powers of darkness. It may not be something we see perfectly clear yet, notice in Jesus' ministries, the, the only other ones who really recognize him as God's son are demons, by the way. They know the story. It's almost like uh, the devil had a big mouth and told all his friends what happened in the desert, but Jesus didn't do that yet. It says a lot about humility in that sentence. But that that one is bound up. We may deal with the after effects and the shocks of that. But as Christians, we should believe, we should trust we should know that what happened there is that that one has been defeated and disarmed. And like soldiers thinking the battle is still going when it's really over is the place that we are. That someday this place will be brought to wholeness and to consummation. 
These are the truths for us in the story. And so I'm excited as we continue to give shape to the book of Mark, the story of Mark, or as I said, the the story that Mark tells us about Jesus in a particular way. Let us pray. God, we've heard the beginning of the good news of your residency in the world. This residency both comes as a surprise, but also comes with past oracles who have prepared us for this truth. Past made plain. One who knows the Father coming amongst us. So as we've heard this good news, we've heard of your participation in baptism with us. Resurrection into new life and bursting forth from the waters that we participate into our baptisms as well. We hear of the one who's driven out to the wilderness and binds the powers of darkness. So that you can appear on the scene announcing the kingdom kingdom that we participate in, that we live in, that asks of us that we simply believe and we turn around. We make the change of going back the other direction and following. May the Gospel of Mark make us good readers, good learners, good listeners of what you're telling us. Amen.